0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast, and congratulations on the long weekend. I'm going to be taking a couple of days off, so happy birthday, America. This will be our pre-July 4th podcast, and and we are joined by the newly minted author of the book, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. So Ellie, first of
1: all, good morning. Charlie, thank you for having me. Um, this is this is my first book. This is my debut voyage into the world of writing books, and uh, it's been a remarkable—I wouldn't say difficult, but interesting—and and I hope rewarding experience, especially for the readers.
0: Well, I, based on the the title that I just read, Hatchet Man, I'm, I'm assuming you're not a Bill Bar fan.
1: No, I'm not. Me but not. I do. But I do want to say this. You know, it's funny, by the way, when uh, when I asked Bill Barr and his people, if they would speak with me, I, I told them, I said, look, full disclosure, it's a very critical book. It's entitled Hatchet Man. Um, <laughs> I told them you'll, be, okay, you'll, you'll be well, I, you know, I didn't want to I didn't want them to say he was sabotaged or anything. Yeah, um, right. But um. You'll be shocked to know they did not respond to me at all either time uh, that I reached out. But I do want to say this, and I note this in the book because I think it's important. There's a section in the book where I talk about how a lot of commentators like me who had been Critical of the Trump administration, up on you know before Barr was uh, nominated, gave Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt and said he looks like a good picket. And and I quote myself because I happened to be on set on, at CNN the day that Bill Barr's name came out and they got in my ear. I was sitting in the newsroom on on cam and they said, "Hey, do you know anything about this guy?" And I, I the name rang a bell because he had been AG in the early nineties. And I had a moment to do some quick research and I looked at him and and I pulled a quote. I had a producer pull a quote. I said something like, he looks like a good pick. He's he's established. He's experienced. He's taken, he, he, he's a serious person. And coming off of Jeff Sessions and Matthew Whitaker, he seems like a great pick. And I ended up writing this book. And the point is, I did not have my so-called hatchet out for this guy from the start. I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, but he then spent two years um, making me regret that.
0: Well, and and he's on a, a tour to uh rehabilitate his reputation. So yeah. I want to get to that. I, I want to get to um, your 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 thesis. Uh, I want to talk about all of these things. And I want to talk about uh, the indictments yesterday. You've been a busy man on, on, sure. on CNN talking about the Trump organization in indictments. But I just want to start off by uh, because the, the, the danger is that we move too fast sometimes and that we forget things. Uh, it was a significant day yesterday, uh, I mean, this week when the House of Representatives uh, approved the select committee to investigate January 6th. And yeah. Nancy, Pelosi took the rather extraordinary step of naming Liz Cheney to the committee, and the, the Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has basically been sulking. By the time people listen to this, they may know whether he's going to participate. But he had apparently threatened any Republican: "If you dare to go on that committee, we, you know, we, we might strip you of your committee assignments." Marjorie Taylor Greene's okay, you know. Louis Gohmert's okay. Paul Gosar is okay, but if you try to investigate January 6, you're you're going to be out. I think we're already seeing how the Republicans are shifting on this, the, the, the messaging. And I'm sure you saw this, Ellie, but uh, one of uh, Kevin McCarthy's flacks, uh, his uh, political advisor, Mike Shield, went on CNN and had a very interesting exchange with, with Poppy Harlow. In fact, when I first got uh, th- this clip. Uh, sent to me by our colleague Amanda Carpenter, she said, you have to listen to this because uh, Mike Shields actually says that January 6th does not affect anyone's lives, that it's just like totally irrelevant. And I, I thought that, oh, come on, that can't be, that's got to be a paraphrase, that's Twitter snark. Listen to this. This is the. This is, I mean, is a political issue. issue. And, and, and by the way, as a, um, as a campaign operative, Mike as a Republican, yes. I'm kind of glad. I, if the Democrats want to run on 22 about January 6th, which affects no one's lives in this country every day, Republicans what? are going to run on securing the border. Wait, wait, hold They're on. Gonna, January 6th affects no one's lives in this oh, country. This period. this commission is not going to affect is that what people's you, lives. But, no, of course h- how not. How could not it's, having it's, answers it's not to put an people ongoing to work. threat? It's not going to help them with their taxes. An
1: ongoing threat.
0: Mike, <laughs> so there, there oh you have God. it. We're 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 going to not only memory hole it. We're going to make the memory holing a political virtue. So okay. expect more of that.
1: I, I'm a little bit speechless. I I, I echo Poppy's What? Um, which I thought <laughs> was a great reaction. You know, I, let's just uh, let's just step back for a moment. The the fact that we had happened on January six, what happened? I mean, I, it's still hard to even believe that happened. That people stormed the Capitol. Everyone knows what happened. And this, this revisionism, or, or worse than revisionism, this denialism that we've seen break out, it, it's one of the hallmarks, really, of the Donald Trump years. And, and frankly, it's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, because there's this culture or this ethic of, if you just deny it enough times, downplay it enough times, you can eventually make it go away, or at least make it go away for enough people. Now, you have your Trumps and you have your, your Gosars and your Boberts and those people who are circus like in the way they do it but one of the things that's so insidious about bill barr is he does it under the sheen or the veneer of the law and intellectualism and so a lot of what he does is really not much different from that clip of that guy that we just heard he just does it with he used to do it with the doj stamp on top of it which as a doj alum made me go crazy but but he does it in this more genteel academic way that that's no less dangerous though
0: well that's right and uh, you can you can see that the Republicans have gone back to their talking points as well so they they're, they're yeah. going back to their comfort zone so before we get to to Bill Barr I want yeah. I didn't want to talk to you but I know you spent uh, all day on on the air yesterday <laughs> talking about uh, the indictments of the Trump organization and and uh, let me just bounce off my my initial gut reaction and you 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 know yeah. give me your your take which is obviously going to be a lot more informed you're a former assistant US attorney from the southern district of New York so this is the opening gambit I have to say that I found it a little bit underwhelming. The amount of money seemed relatively modest. Um, Alan, you know, the the point seems to be to get Alan Weisselberg to flip. It seems unlikely he's going to flip. The indictment of the Trump organization has, has consequences. So uh, give me your sense of this because there are a lot of people going, that's it. After all of this, you get the guy for some Tax evasion that probably wouldn't be charged from another company. So give give me your take.
1: That's essentially where I'm at, and, and okay. you, you use the phrase opening gambit. That that's that's what I focus on. If this is merely an opening gambit, like a, a first move in a chess game, and they have more substantially more, then let's see um, what they are doing here. Strate- but but if this is it, if all we ever see is an indictment of the organization. And this individual Weisselberg and maybe a couple other, you know, Matthew Calamari types or other Weisselberg relatives, that is a massive dud. Given the amount of resources that these prosecutors, the DA and the AG have put in it, given that the attorney general, Letitia James, explicitly, and I have a problem with this, campaigned two years ago on vote for me and I'll nail the Trumps, I think that's – completely improper for any prosecutor to do some of the DA candidates to replace Vance did the same thing. Um, given that they have made public statements that they shouldn't be making about this, again, the attorney general in particular, if all they come out with is this, um, that's, they just can't spin that. I'm sorry. that That's a failure. Now, what, um, let me tell you what prosecutors are trying to do. I'm fairly confident mm-hmm. because I've done it a lot of times. Whenever you're trying to penetrate a closed organization, whether it's a corporation like this, I used to do mob cases, a mob family, you sit down and you go, let's look at the org chart here. Let's look at the hierarchy. Who can we pry loose? Who can we flip? Who is vulnerable? For whatever reason, family loyalty, you know, whatever the situation may be. And who would have access? Who'd be able to walk us through this organization, explain what all the documents mean, tell us what we're missing, that kind of thing. And Weisselberg's the perfect person. I mean, you could show this, you could explain the structure of the Trump org to a thousand prosecutors, and 998 of us will immediately go, Well, you're going for Weisselberg here. You're not gonna flip Eric Trump, you're not gonna flip mm-hmm. Ivanka, right? A- and he's got the insider access. Now, all indications are he's not gonna flip. And is yesterday's indictment enough to get him to flip? I would bet not. It's possible, though. I guess I'll say there have been people who I thought would never flip and swore they would never flip, and then when you indict them and handcuff them, that has a way of changing things. But you know, the charges against Weiselberg—I think the proof looks strong. But he's a seventy-something-year-old guy. It's his first offense. Um, You know, the the loss amounts are fairly spread out. Like if you talk to New York state practitioners, they'll tell you even if he gets convicted, he has a fairly good chance of a low prison sentence. So his incentive isn't quite as immediate as it is when you charge, let's say, a mobster with murder or a guy with armed robberies or things like that. So that's where I'm at. If they've got something bigger up their sleeve, let's see it. I'm not seeing any particular indicators of that yet. Um, And if not, then then it's a a dud.
0: So why it, it aren't the feds involved in this? If this does involve tax evasion, it's obviously state taxes, but it's also yeah. federal taxes. So it'd be a federal crime. It does seem like the SDNY is sitting this one out. Why?
1: It's a good question that I echo. Um, and I echo that for the entire Justice Department. This one, the Merrick Garland one, um, there are so many things that Donald Trump did and um, even beyond whatever he might've done at the org, I think the Fed's calculation here is, look, if the state's running a fulsome investigation, they poured all these resources in, there's no need for us to pile on. That's a calculation you make in all sorts of cases, you know, not involving the president. Um, You wouldn't ordinarily double up that way from one, and I've been on both sides, federal and state. If you know the other side's got it, they've got it. Um, But One of the big things for Merrick Garland, and I think there's a lot of things that Merrick Garland's done that have been good, that have been improvements over Bill Barr. One of my criticisms thus far is it looks like, and we don't know exactly what's going on behind closed doors, but there's been no indication, no reporting of anything to show that Merrick Garland has any interest in looking at anything Donald Trump did from obstructing the Mueller investigation to Ukraine to January 6th to trying to interfere with the election results in Georgia and elsewhere. And it looks to me like Merrick Garland is looking for the path of least resistance because he doesn't want to be quote political. But at a certain point, if you're bending over backwards and turning blind eyes to things to avoid being political, then you're not doing your job as a prosecutor.
0: It does seem like the case is solid, even if it's relatively small, and yeah. especially since Weiselberger apparently kept uh, spreadsheets, basically how I'm going to commit this crime. I mean, yeah. it's a, they 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 laid it out. But as you point out, the the leverage is usually a long jail term, which they really don't have. Yeah. The other uh, point that the attorneys were making is that this is the kind of thing that prosecutors generally do not bring criminal charges for. It is illegal. It is a crime. I mean, there's no question about. It. Leona Helmsley went to jail for what, uh, 19 months for, you know, uh, in income tax e- evasion. So it is illegal. Um, more than little people should pay taxes. But I guess here's the edgiest question, yeah. at least to me, is that would this charge have been, and, and I'm, I'm actually quoting from the defense attorney, which is probably a mistake, but would this charge have been brought against a company that did not have Donald Trump's name in it? So I guess there there, there is that feeling yeah. like, ooh, would you have done this if this had been the Charlie Sykes Company or the
1: Ellie Honig Company? It's a legitimate question. And let let me give you my instinct. With respect to the individual, the person who was cheating taxes, in this case, Alan Weisselberg, I do think you would bring it. I do think I I agree the proof is very strong um, and I think it's enough money that you would bring it. Would you indict a corporation, though? for this. Because you have to think when you indict a corporation, there's collateral consequences, right? That that you could bring down the corporation, you could cost people jobs, that kind of thing. Now look, the Trump organization is fairly closely held and that kind of thing. But if you're looking at DOJ guidance, I know this is not a DOJ case, but I think it's sound prosecutorial guidance that says you need to look at the extent of the criminality. You need to look at how much money is involved. I mean, you know, one point seven million dollars is a lot of income, but it's it's over fifteen years. You're talking about hundred thousand dollars a year, right. roughly. Right. Would you indict a corporation normally over tax fraud of and the loss would be about half of that, of fifty thousand dollars a year? Ordinarily, no, you would not.
0: All right, let's. Do you, do you think, by the way, that they're ever going to bring charges against Donald Trump? I mean, reading the tea leaves. Not in this
1: case. Not unless not they get it. N- not in this case. Not not if unless Alan Weisselberg flips. I mean, I've said all along. If Alan Weisselberg flips, it, you know, it, it's a brand yeah. new ball game. But without that, I, I don't see it at all. No.
0: Okay, so let's talk about Hatchet Man. Um, it, it is interesting that this is the your book comes out. Is it, your book comes out this week? July 6th, that's right. Okay, okay, so it it comes out. And just as Bill Barr (laughs) begins his rehabilitation campaign, I think it was uh, last weekend that we had the Atlantic interview where he clearly is telling the story about when he drew the line and that he was the man who's told Donald Trump, it's all bullshit, I'm not going along with the big lie. And there are folks out there going, Bill Barr was a hero. Bill Barr in the end did the right thing. You are not buying the rehabilitation tour, are you?
1: Not not buying, <laughs> to say the least. Not at all. Um, so first of all, I don't know this for a fact, but I have circumstantial evidence, more than just me guessing, that Bill Barr tried to time this to preempt, preempt, quote unquote, my book or to somehow rehabilitate himself before my book comes out. I wish I could say more, but I can't. But I have a decent indication that there, that was some consideration. So um, if so, uh, God, God bless you. We have, we, It's a free society. I am not buying the Bill Barr Image Rehabilitation Tour. Here's what I want people to know. In December, December first of 2020, three weeks, three and a half weeks after the election, when it was clear to any sane, right-minded human being that it was over, that Joe Biden would be our president, and that Donald Trump was out, Bill Barr did publicly—I talk about this in my book—he did publicly come out to the AP and said, "There's no evidence of election fraud." Footnote: He then undermined himself, Bill Barr, a couple of weeks later when he resigned and put this sycophantic letter in to Donald Trump saying, "Oh, you're 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 you know you're such a wonderful president." And by the way, we're still looking for election fraud. I want you to know that, but. Here's what Bill Barr, his imagery of rehabilitation effort not only was dishonest, it, it's clumsy, it's ham-handed, because what he somehow doesn't mention in the article and somehow isn't asked is, how about the months leading up the month. to the election when you fan the flames, Bill Barr? And, and Charlie, if I can, I'll, I'll just lay out quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Barr did an interview in June of 2020, six months or so, five months before the election. And this is right about a few months after Donald Trump started going every day on Twitter and saying election fraud, election fraud. Bill Barr goes on NPR and talks about the massive risk of fraud that we couldn't possibly police and we're going to have counterfeit ballots coming in from overseas. And and poor NPR, God bless him, had to run a correction piece a couple of days later entitled – NPR allowed the attorney general to say falsehoods on our air, and they quoted actual election experts that said the things Bill Barr was saying, and I quote, were false, preposterous, and my favorite, nuts. They had an election expert, this guy from MIT, who said they were nuts. Okay, that's chapter one. A month later, Bill Barr gets in front of the cameras in Congress. We're in July. July. Now in July, July of Repeats the same garbage. He gets asked by Representative Scanlon, a, De- a Democratic representative from Pennsylvania, what's your proof for all this? And Bill Barr says, none, but it's common sense. It's like, okay, I mean – The things that are common sense or obvious are the easiest to prove. People people are saying. Yeah, right, um, right. Obviously, it could be. exactly. I mean, it's obvious that the sun sets every night, but but like I could easily prove it. (laughs) Um, So and then the third part was CNN. He goes into for this one-on-one with Wolf Blitzer, September. So we're now two months before the election. And he repeats the same garbage and Wolf is sort of openly dubious and pushing back. And at one point, um, Bar goes well. Let me tell you, we he says we we indicted a case involving seventeen hundred.
0: I'd oh forgotten this,
1: right? Fraudulent thing. ballots in Texas, and I got to tell you, Charlie, I'm watching this, going, yeah. whoa. Well, that's that's substantial. Okay, now they got something. Guess what? Turned out, not we. First of all, it was state prosecutors, and that's a small point. But I don't know how the hell the attorney general doesn't know that it's not one of his cases. Second of all. This case, seventeen hundred ballots involved a single one fraudulent ballot, and guess who had to walk it back? DOJ had to issue this mealy mouth correction where they said, and, "And this is how's this for courage? It was the fault of a mid level staffer who wrote a, a bum memo." I mean, first of all, so he, he gets up there and he lies to Wolf. They had this ridiculous walk back. And by the way, I was in charge of, after I was a federal prosecutor, I came over to the state of New Jersey. I was in charge of 500 and change prosecutors and, and detectives. The notion that you would be given this important fact and you would go do a national interview and you wouldn't at some point say, whoa, we have a case that supports my point exactly. Who, whose case is this? Can, can I get a little briefing on this? Like, can I talk to the guy? He either knew that that was BS or he's completely incompetent to go on Wolf and say that. But anyway, those are three very high-profile national instances where Bill Barr fanned the flames of election fraud. Bill Barr – January 6th is on Bill Barr. I'm sorry. I don't care what he did after the fact. He, he fan think of it. – I've used this analogy before. It's like if he helped light the twigs, got a paper plate, fanned the campfire, the campfire caught the cabin next door, and then as it was burning, <laughs> he took a leak on it. Great. Okay, you know, it's your fault still. I don't care if you about this half-hearted effort to walk it back at the end.
0: Yeah, not not necessarily Nobel Prize worthy. So, <laughs> right. Why and, and and you talk about how he broke the prosecutor's code. I mean, just even talking about ongoing pending investigations you are never supposed to do that. I mean, this is this is a yeah. core principle, but Bill Barr was breaking those norms all the time and clearly felt that he was he was doing uh, his master's bidding. But at some point he stopped doing it. Yeah. I mean, given given the entire entire trajectory of Bill Barr's career, even going back to his first tenure as attorney general, I mean, you know, Bill Bill Barr told us who he was over and over and over again. I mean, his willingness to lie for the administration, his willingness to politicize this, and yet he ran up against something. So, you know, you describe him as the most corrupt attorney general in modern history which yeah. we can come back to. But even the most corrupt attorney general in modern history reached a limit somehow. Why? What what
1: happened there, do you think? It, it's an interesting question that, that I take on in the book. I mean, the first question people have a lot of times is, why did he want the job a second time, right? Yeah. Um, when he did it once and he had a fairly solid reputation, and he had a ton of money. Um, we can get to that. But what, what made him stop? Um, you know, I think it was the reality hit of the election was over, They had lost and Bill Barr himself said it best. History is written by the winners. Well, guess what? Right. Remember when he was asked about the Michael Flynn case and he sort of uh, very arrogantly chuckled and said, "Uh, history is written by the winners. Um, Well, he's a savvy enough guy to realize, look, I don't want to go down in history with the loony bin of Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell right? Because he is a, he was a respected establishment yeah. figure, especially in Republican and Federalist society circles. And that's fine. And I think Bill Barr does, did not want to go down with, with the, the the true starry-eyed sycophants. And I think he wanted to distance himself. And maybe part of that, I think part of that is legacy. I think part of that is wanting to have continuing viability, both as a professional and perhaps as a speaker and, a you know, that kind of thing. Um, and he made a I believe a calculated self-interested decision um it was way too little way too late but ultimately in a couple instances down the stretch he did the right thing I mean you know look it's better that he came out in December and said there's no evidence of election fraud than if he didn't do that um and you know another thing I do give him credit for is making sure the Hunter Biden criminal investigation was not announced or leaked because Mm -hmm. that would have violated DOJ, the longstanding DOJ principle and rule against you don't announce a politically charged criminal case in the run up to an election. Now, he he tweaked it and he played fast and loose with it in other consequences. But um, I, I say in the book, look, I don't think everything the guy ever did was the worst thing ever. There are some things he did that I give him credit for, and that's one of them.
0: So going through this timeline, and, 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 I, and I think you're right in your analysis here. So um, and this is now pure speculation yeah. that clearly, you know, um, Bill, Bill Barr is somebody who's willing to bend, you know, bend the rules, look the other way, do whatever possible, you know, to uh, to advance himself and 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 his boss. But he was embarrassed by the clown show. So, yeah. you know, here's yeah. here's this moment. He's looking around. He got Rudy Giuliani. He got Jenna Ellis. You got Lynn Pagli. He got my pillow guy. He got all these complete nut jobs. He thinks these guys are embarrassing. It's a complete shit show, according to some reporting. That's what he told the president. He said, "You know, you have five weeks to 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 do this. You need uh, you would need a crack legal team instead. You have like the worst lawyers in in the world, um, <laughs> as opposed to me." I, I kind of in the back of my mind, I was wondering when I was reading about this, if if he had been put in charge, if these other guys had been sidelined, would mm-hmm. it have played out differently? Because clearly, he was kind of shoved to the side. And the president, you know, Trump did turn this into just an embarrassing shit show. Yeah. And um, that, you know, so what do you, you know what I'm going on this? I mean, I do, you know I was, do. Uh, yeah.
1: It's a, re, it's a great question, Charlie. And, and, and I'm going to, a, a good friend of mine who's a super smart guy and he's, he's deep in the federalist society world, but, but he also understands that, it, that, you know, the Rudys and Jennas of the world are wacky. He laid out for me and I'm going to do my best to, to sort of retell it here. He said, there would have been a way. If this had been done right and smart, meaning like challenging the election and trying to, you know, tilt the election in Trump's favor. There would have been a way to do this that could have worked. And here's what he told me. He said, you get a team of real attorneys, not these ridiculous circus clowns, mm-hmm. but real attorneys, Bill Barr types, right? You know, you hire your guys out there in the, in the, in the world. There's plenty of them in law firms and smart federalist society, hard conservatives, you know, you're, you're Don McGann, Pat Cipollone types. I mean, I know Cipollone had a, you know, had an administration job at the time, but guys like that. And months – well, well, well in advance of the election, you start challenging some of these expansions of mail-in balloting and expansions of the right to vote because a lot of these states very quickly, abruptly, with COVID hitting in early 2020, started expanding – um, the use of mail and ballots in ways that that according you know my friend argues and I think I don't necessarily agree but argues were unconstitutional. He says look the Constitution says it's it's up to state legislatures to decide how to run their elections And what we saw was non-legislative state bodies, governors in some instances courts. Making that decision and not the state legislature. So what you do is you deploy your real legal teams to all these states and you bring challenges way far enough in advance that you actually have a chance of succeeding in the court and stopping these things from going out. And you know, look, this is a this is a cold-hearted calculation by these folks who understand that the vast majority—and it did play out this way—the vast majority of those mail-in ballots were were for the Democratic candidate for Joe Biden. So when I heard that, I thought, yep, that's how a very if you could have taken a very sharp Law firm partner, or you know, and said, "How do we do this legally, strategically?" That's how you do it. You don't wait till the last minute and file this spate of wacko lawsuits and have the 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 you know the the Sidney Powells of the world doing it. And Bill Barr might have been okay with that. I mean, that seems that seems yeah, be consistent. I mean, Bill Barr, you know you. It's possible DOJ could have even gone along with that, right? Because DOJ does weigh into voting rights issues. We're seeing Merrick Garland now weigh in against restrictive voting uh, you know, rights. But yeah, I mean, DOJ could have joined those suits. DOJ could have brought those suits if, if they had been asked or if Bill Barr had thought of it or wanted to do it. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about Bill Barr and and what makes him tick, why he wanted this job again. And as we know he wrote that long. Was it an 18 page basically job application saying, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't think that uh, Bob Mueller has any right to charge the president for anything. I mean, it was it was like a a rehearsal to uh, for the president. If you're looking for somebody who will be your Roy Cohn, let me ask you about that. You yeah. know, the president wanted a Roy Cohn, and that's not a flattering analogy for most lawyers. And a guy like Bill Barr, is a former attorney general, prominent, you know, all, all of this prestige. You said he's got a lot of money. Does he really want to be Roy Cohn? Because that seems to be the job that he, you know, was hired to do. And he had to understand that that was the that was what the parameters. Right. He was going to be Roy right. Cohn.
1: Why, why would Bill Barr want to grow up to be Roy Cohn? He doesn't want to be Roy Cohn, but he wants the job desperately, and he understands how to communicate with Donald Trump, and he understands how to appeal to Donald Trump. So let's set the stage here. Bill Barr's AG from 91 to 93 under George H.W. Bush, the father. Um, you know, fairly uh, standard term as AG, got embroiled in a few controversies, but every AG does. But by the time 2018 rolls around, he's largely forgotten. He spends the next 25 years in lucrative obscurity. He's not in the public view anymore. He's a law firm partner. He's general counsel for some multinational corporations. He's worth tens of millions of dollars at this point. 2018 rolls around and Barr's name gets nominated. And Barr tries to put on this act of like, oh, I'm a semi-retired grandfather. He says at his confirmation hearing, I really didn't want this job. I suggested some other people. I was reluctant, but they kind of dragged me back in Bullshit. I'm sorry. I don't know if this is a cursing podcast or not. Um, It is definitely a cursing podcast. Okay, Okay. good. Um, (laughs) BS. Um, First of all, he auditioned. Why do you write that memo? And that memo, you couldn't have lock and keyed that memo to exactly what Donald Trump was desperate to hear any better than that. And by the way, just – Fairly recently, Jonathan Swan, a great reporter at Axios, reported a few months ago that that memo made its way to Donald Trump or the gist of it and he liked what he saw. I mean, shocker, right? The other thing that's total BS about Bill Barr's whole like, oh, I don't need this job is he did media. Not only did he do his audition memo, he did interviews with the media slagging Mueller and saying this investigation is, is doomed and it's ridiculous and it's political. I mean, so don't tell me you got dragged out, you know, reluctantly into this gig. So that's number one. What did Bill Barr want to do? My argument in the book, and I base this on Bill Barr's own words and actions, is that Bill Barr, unlike your, maybe your Jenna Ellis or your Stephen Miller or some of these true believers, he didn't view, he didn't treat Donald Trump as this mystical figure to be revered. He viewed Donald Trump as a vehicle, as a means to an ends. And here's the two ends that Bill Barr pursued through his actions as attorney general. One, And this one's less extreme and less problematic. Bill Barr has a hard right, federalist society, conservative view of the law. That's fine. That's that's within the mainstream. It's on the far right, but that's fine. Where where the president sort of stands above and beyond and and is all powerful. Now, Bill Barr pushed that to a ridiculous excess. He endorsed legal views that the president can never be subpoenaed, that nobody in the entire executive branch can ever be subpoenaed by Congress, that the courts just destroyed and rejected. But if Bill Barr was right, it would have put the president and he largely did succeed in putting the president beyond the reach of the law. He lost. He got his ass kicked in court. But you know what he did? He dragged his feet and got a lot of these disputes dragged out past the election. That's part one. Part two. And here's the really sort of um, insidious part. Here's the part that I think really gets into Bill Barr's mind. Bill Barr is a true culture warrior. He is an onward religious soldier, culture warrior. Like Charlie, you'll remember, you know, in the 90s, this was a big thing, right? The Pat Robertsons running for election and that kind of thing. Now, let me say this, Bill Barr is not a member of Opus Dei, right? This extremist group, there's persistent rumors that he is. That's not true, I say that in the book. He is, however, an absolute believer that religiosity, and, and to quote him, The Judeo-Christian religious view, not any religion, Judeo-Christian religiosity is the only true way and the only moral, ethical, sort of uh, stable way to organize civil society. He is disdainful. He has utter disgust for secularism, for the idea of a of a government that's not religious, right? Of a public life that's not religious, and we dug up speeches that he gave and articles that he wrote in the '90s where he says outrageous things. We need to reassemble the flock and charge back up the hill and retake, you know, he, retake what's ours. He, I'm paraphrasing here. He, but I'm, I'm going to quote this. He rails against the quote homosexual movement and says that that movement plus other ills of secularism are tearing apart the fabric of our society and causing everything from the breakdown of the family to 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 uh depression, de- mental health issues, drug abuse, homelessness. Um so he's a real old school culture warrior and that manifested itself in some of the things he did as attorney general. He went on a killing spree. He went on a death penalty spree on his way out the door. He argued in the Supreme Court not he personally but his DOJ against equal protection for LGBTQ people. So I believe that that was his, and I think that his own words and actions proved that that was his real driving motivation in all this.
0: You know, that seemed to have been missed because that was certainly not my impression when he was originally yeah. appointed. I mean, I, I was not a Bill Barr fan, particularly because of that that letter, but, but he was portrayed as the, this kind of an institutional establishment guy, the culture warrior stuff came as kind of a surprise, but as you point out, you know, in great detail, it should not have, but it's also central to understanding, you know, how his mind works, that, that, that he, that he was, he might, he might not have been a Trump true believer, but he was a true believer. And, you know, that was very, very comfortable in, in these, in these culture, in the culture, uh, war front
1: yeah Bill Barr is very good at dressing things up. um and, and, you know he he doesn't give the appearance of an extreme person, right he he speaks slowly. he has a kind of you know, a hang dog, a, you know, look to him, right. He's not a fire breather. He's not your Jim Jordan, right. You know, who right. you, you listen to for five seconds, you go, okay, boy, this guy's got some extreme views. He, he was good at that. And he also was good at that in the legal sense. He did a lot of legal memos up to, including his, his audition memo that we've talked about, but a lot of the the court papers that went in and the opinion memos that were authored under his um, view look the part, right? They, they're on DOJ letterhead. And so they look weighty and he, he, and he knows how to lard them with um, legal citations. But really, if you look at it as a lawyer, and I take these apart in a, in a layman's way in the book, they're garbage. I mean, his record in the courts was atrocious. He lost constantly in the courts. He do, he makes arguments that, that are circular, that are self-contradictory. His tactic was, if, if you really look at his briefs, which I did, is to cite legal uh, propositions that are undisputed and then just say, and therefore the part that's controversial that I agree with, therefore I'm automatically right. It's really flimsy argument. So he's sort of, um, he's, he's more, he's trickier than we give him credit for and he's trickier than Hmm. he appears.
0: So obviously, one of the defining episodes of, of Bill Barr's tenure as attorney general the second time around was uh, the, the Mueller investigation and the, and this handling of the Mueller report. So talk to me a little bit about uh, his approach to that. He, yeah. you know, he based on that that letter. He was hired, he was named attorney general in part to derail the Mueller investigation. And he did it far more effectively than anyone expected that he would he would do. What was his what was his role as far
1: as you? Th- this was Bill Barr's original sin. And he told us all what was coming in that audition memo. I mean, in the memo before he was named attorney general, Bill Barr wrote that that Mueller's investigation was, and I quote, fatally misconceived. Okay, fatally meaning like it's dead. Okay. And of course that's what he did. Bill Barr did a couple things. First of all, and just to refresh everyone's memory, he got the Mueller report first. He's the he and his inner inner circle were the only people who saw the Mueller report. They got it on a Friday night, March twenty second of twenty. What was it? Nineteen. Two days later, Sunday, took him forty eight hours. This document is four hundred forty eight pages, single spaced, thousands upon thousands of names and footnotes and citations and. 2 days later he has somehow digested this whole thing and drawn two firm legal conclusions both of which were dishonest and or wrong. First of all, he announces that basically Donald Trump has been entirely cleared on collusion. He doesn't use the word collusion, but he later uses the word collusion, but he says there's no conspiracy. And one of the things that he does is but he cuts off the all the important findings. There's a sentence that Bill Barr clips in his four-page report, out of the Mueller report, but he clips off the first half of it. The second half that Barr puts in his four-page letter says, and therefore there's not enough evidence to indict for conspiracy with Russia. What he cuts out was the part of the same sentence where Mueller says, I'm paraphrasing, but although Russia committed crimes to try to interfere with the 2016 election to help Donald Trump, and although the Trump campaign knew about that interference and expected to benefit from it, comma, there's no chargeable crime. So that is completely dishonest and misleading. And by the way, th- don't just take it from me. Multiple federal judges have made those findings. Then Bill Barr declares I also find there's no obstruction of justice. Now, Mueller, I think, pulled up short here because Mueller laid out the case for obstruction, but then did the whole dance of, well, because I can't indict the president, I'm not going to say an opinion, blah, blah, blah. Look, I mean, I'm one of over 2,000 former federal prosecutors who signed a letter saying this is absolutely obstruction. And by the way, nobody's ever come out on the other side other than Bill Barr and Rod Rosenstein, who Rod Rosenstein just goes along with whatever his boss goes along with at any point. So Bill Barr declares no obstruction. It's completely unsupported by the law. And here's just one more detail, Charlie, that people may forget. Here's what's so damn devious about this guy. Everyone remembers that he mischaracterized, lied about the Mueller report, but here's what people may not remember. Can I, I, let me put you on the spot for a sec, because I just want, I'm interested to see people's memories. How long did Bill Barr hold on to the Mueller report itself? So he gets it and then he takes two days to issue his four page letter. Then how many days or weeks do you remember passing between that and when we all actually got to see the actual Mueller report?
0: That's a really good question. I'm I'm thinking it was like a week to 10 days. It was 27 days. It
1: was about a month. Oh my God. Really? Right. And what okay. happened during that month? I uh-huh. mean, we all know uh-huh. the power we all know the power of first impressions, right? So yeah, Hobart right. says he's all clear and then he lets it sit there for a month. He's the only voice in, and nobody can check him. Nobody can say, other than Muller, who by the way in that time writes him and says, Dude, you 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 totally mischaracterized what I said, right? Which was but an amazing it, letter. Yeah. Yeah. In that time. Right. The Mueller letter say, I mean, coming from Bob Mueller, it's like fireworks. Right. To say, like, you've mischaracterized the substance context and whatever. In that time, Donald Trump declares victory and all of his supporters say it's over. He's been totally cleared. Bill Barr does a little mini tour. He testifies in Congress. Congress doesn't have the Mueller report. He gives a press conference the day the Mueller report gets released but he doesn't release the Mueller report till right after his press conference. So nobody can yeah. even ask him questions. And you know what his rationale was for that? Do you remember this? He says, oh, I had to redact it. Meaning like cross out classified. I mean, look, A lot of work, Yeah. No. I mean, I've redacted things. It takes some time. The guy had the entire Justice Department at his at his fingertips. There's no way. And a federal judge later found that was nonsense and the way he didn't even redact it properly anyway. And it, there's no way it would have taken that long. And by the way, Mueller gave him summaries. Mueller gave Bill Barr, they're at the front of each section of the report, seven page summaries. And Mueller's letter says, hey, uh, uh, you were supposed to release my summaries. Like I already scrubbed them. They're good. And Barr opted to hold those as well. So the way... He choreographed this. Was especially devious.
0: It was also very asymmetrical because he yeah. was doing this choreographing while M- Mueller was, I guess, so old school that he he, di- he didn't he wasn't playing on the same on on the same battlefield, was he? He he was 100%. just no ma- He was just no match for this. And exactly. you look back on this and, and the way now that that the you know Mueller report exonerated Trump has become kind of just this the the, the go to talking point on on the right. If this had been laid out in the way that you described, if the if the summaries had been released, if the full report had been released much, much quicker, uh, or if Bill Barr had not gone on his uh, his spin campaign, I, I think the impression would be dramatically different. And and Mueller really was not able to or willing to do anything to correct that record.
1: Yeah, asymmetry is a great phrase for this because that's exactly what I was. I mean, there is a, a real nobility about Robert Mueller as a person and the way he handled this, an old school nobility. Now, I've been critical and I remain critical of Mueller for mumble-mouthing his conclusions and not giving us clear conclusions. But Mueller is sort of so old school of like, you don't pick fights and you don't twist things. And I think he had faith that Bill Barr would do the same, but of course, Bill Barr had no such intention, and he played completely dirty in this. Now, imagine though, just imagine if Bill Barr didn't send out that distorted four-page letter. Imagine if he had just done what the obvious move was and released Mueller summaries. We would have known, the first thing we, the public, would have known about the report from Robert Mueller's mouth, or from Robert Mueller's keyboard, at least, his pen, is this, Russia committed crimes to interfere with the 2016 election. They did it because they wanted Donald Trump to win. Donald Trump's campaign knew about this. This is all in the Mueller report and the summaries. Donald Trump's campaign expected to benefit from it. And there were dozens upon dozens of efforts from people in the Trump campaign, up to and including Don Jr. and Jared Kushner, to contact Russian people to try to get dirt. Imagine if we knew all that and if we knew that Robert Mueller found evidence, in some cases Mm -hmm. overwhelming evidence, of 11 instances of obstruction of justice. Imagine how the public would have reacted as opposed to Bill Barr's four-page letter, which is no conspiracy and I find no obstruction. I mean, it's night and day.
0: So you describe him as the most corrupt attorney general in modern history. Basically, what was the the corruption? And and how thoroughly did he corrupt the department? And how much did the department, the Department of Justice, institutionally, was it able to resist that, that attempt to corrupt it?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. So two ways. When I was a prosecutor, when I was raised at DOJ, and by the way, one of my criticisms of Barr is the guy never tried a case in his life. He he didn't. He wasn't raised in DOJ the way I was, and the vast ninety nine percent or you know whatever percent of the people at DOJ were. He never tried a case as a prosecutor. He never worked at a U.S. Attorney's office. He doesn't understand what it's all about. And one of the things he would have understood if he had the rate the upbringing that I had at the SDNY is you only have two things that matter as a prosecutor. Your credibility and your independence. And I was taught, you know, I was taught you never certainly never lie, but you never fudge, you never shade, you never stretch the truth. And if there's a fact you don't like, you deal with it. You embrace it, you disclose it, and you deal with it. And if you have to change your position, you change your position. He lied to the American public over and over again. Multiple federal judges have found that Robert Mueller told us that and not just on the Mueller report, although that is the biggest one and the first one, even on little things, right? Like, to, for example, you remember last summer when he fired the, the, the U.S. attorney for my former office, the, the SDNY, yes. Jeffrey Berman. The initial statement from Barr was Jeffrey Berman has is going to be stepping down. And then a couple hours later, Berman issued a, a, a public no. statement saying, no, I ain't. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, I mean, so just little things like that, lying about election for the risk of election fraud. We went through it before. I mean, that is unfathomable. We had findings from federal court judges appointed by Republican and Democratic presidents that Bill Barr, the attorney general, was disingenuous, um, misstated the facts in order to tilt things for in favor of Donald Trump. Was misleading. Was not credible. I mean, that's shocking stuff. If that, if any one of those findings had been made about any one of my, you know, run of the mill colleagues, myself included, that would have been an, a, a holy shit moment. As a DOJ prosecutor, to, to see it made against the Attorney General is is remarkable. Um, the second thing is the political independence of the Justice Department. You know, the way it played out for me, I actually spent about half my career there under the. George W. Bush administration. I served under three Republican AGs, um, Ashcroft, Gonzalez, and Mukasey. And then the second half was under the Obama administration with Eric Holder. And, and I I've say this, but I mean it. January 21, 2017, Obama's first day in office felt no different to me than the day before or the day before that. Because you may disagree or agree, I have no problem with the president putting his policy initiatives in through the Justice Department, right? Well we're gonna we're gonna emphasize this type of initiative, not that. We're gonna be strong on policing, mm-hmm. we're gonna be strong, whatever. Um, but what you cannot do is politicize the prosecutorial function. And I never had any question that any of the AGs I served under were, were about their integrity, their credibility, and about whether they were politically independent when it comes to the prosecutorial function. And we saw Bill Barr corrupt that function first with the Mueller report, where he protected the president, later when he intervened in unprecedented manner with Flynn, Michael Flynn case, the Roger Stone case. Um, And really towards the end, and we need to learn more about this, but, you know, the, the cases that ended up with DOJ grabbing the subpoenas of congressional Democrats and members of the media, there's still a lot of questions about that. But, but Bill Barr politically, he, he used DOJ politically in a way that completely violates a core principle of DOJ.
0: And the only real defense that that I can think of for him was that it could have been worse. It was awful, but it could have been worse, which is which is not a hell of a, a defense. So how do you think this rehabilitation <laughs> campaign will go? Will he be able? Will it will, will it be successful? Will he be you know, considered a respectable member of the legal establishment again?
1: I truly do not. I think he's certainly going to try. He has a book coming out, by the way, in 2022. Luckily, my my book will uh-huh. beat him to the punch. I I don't think so. I don't think he deserves it. I mean, look, he will be embraced certainly by well, you know, he's he's in this weird position where he's not going to be embraced by the real Trump uh, uh, hardcores, right? Because right. Trump yes. Trump is he's already attacking. Good. Yeah, but I think where he's gonna where he'll find his acceptance is in that sort of mainstream, the conservative bar type people where he came from. You know, the I, I keep saying Federalist Society, but that that crowd, that culture. But I think anyone to the to the <laughs> I won't even say to the right of there. It's not even, but the, the the true Trump loonies will never accept him. And I think anyone who's sort of a down the middle attorney or or anywhere to the left of that will never accept him because he lied in such grievous manner. He did such damage to the justice department's institutional standing to the way people, people don't, don't trust DOJ now, like they did. It's going to take a long time to build that back. And I, I think, look, I I I think the record needs to be clear. And and I'm kind of sick of the revisionism coming from all the people around Donald Trump. And Bill Mm -hmm. Barr is no exception to that. And and no, you don't get to rewrite history, Bill Barr. You did what you did. You said what you said. It's on record. And and he needs to be held accountable for that.
0: The book is Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by Ellie Honig, who is the senior legal analyst for CNN. Ellie, thank you for, for being so generous with your time today. I know it's been a very busy week for you.
1: My pleasure, Charlie. It's really it's really a thrill to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me vent. This whole, this whole book writing and and, and podcast like this is therapeutic for an old DOJ guy like me.
0: Well, it's all therapeutic because, you know, the writing of books is great. I love, I love writing books, but it's sort of the ultimate in uh, the deferral of gratification. You know, (laughs) you write it and they sit around and then it's there and then it's, it's sort of fixed in place, but um, it's a great read uh, and it's incredibly timely, especially with this, with this revisionist history that's out there. Uh, So anyway, have a great uh, long weekend. Um, I'm sort of looking forward to spending a few days with, with, with the family. I hope uh, everybody is as well. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I will be back next week, and we'll do this all over again.